Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by a few of my colleagues. Of course, we've got uh, Marissa Di Natale and Chris Dorides. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. You'll never guess who I ran into yesterday. The Dalai Lama. <laughs> no, no. Uh, a close second. Mario close second. Draghi. A close second. Ryan Sweet. Oh, yeah. Ah. Former, former co-host of uh, Inside Economics. Yeah. How's Ryan doing? Where, where'd you run into him? At the NABE uh, conference. Oh, that's right. National Let's Association see. of Business Economists. So uh, he was doing, he's actually uh, moderating a panel on monetary policy today or as, as we uh, record this. Oh, very cool. Um, but the, the, the most exciting piece of news I wanted to relay is that I asked him to come on the podcast and he agreed. Uh-huh. No, really? He did. He did. Mm-hmm. And wow, we were thinking he, maybe a little bit of a uh, battle of the champions when it comes to the stats game, given uh, Marissa's uh, prowess and his prowess. Maybe we can uh, yeah, uh, do something around that. So, well, did he, has he finally given up on the whole recession call? I mean, he was like the ardent supporter of, oh, we're going to have a recession in 2023. Did he? Did he admits that we did not have a recession in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> so he's still holding to it then, still recession. No, no, I, I don't think. So. Well, that's why we need to have him on. We have to, have, yeah, yeah, that would be that would be really yeah. good to have him back on. Yeah, that's yeah. very good. Good. And uh, so you were at Nabe, and uh, what were you speaking on? I spoke on uh, uh, commercial real estate ah. and this question of whether or not there's going to be a a doom, doom loop. loop. Yeah. Did you learn anything in the conversation? Um, I'm sure they learned from you, but uh, did you learn anything? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, so there okay. were some interesting uh, remarks from there were some practitioners there, folks uh-huh. that are in the industry. So uh-huh. just kind of interesting ways that they look at the uh, look at the market and how they seg- uh-huh. sub segment it um, so finely, right? You know, uh, class A office property is not just class A office property. It's it's got a lot of different nuances and sub segments, top right. end, bottom end. So um, right. it was Did just you come away. I mean, uh, my sense of it is that this has become it's obviously a risk and still a weight on the economy but the threat is abating at least in terms of this idea that we're going to go into a doom loop did you come away with that pers- that view or something different yeah yeah that was that was a view it. going in that was a view coming out, coming out. um yeah. you know certainly some cities are in rough you know going to have a, hard, a tougher time adjusting right. uh, to the loss of office properties for example top property tax revenue um, but not at a national level, it's very unlikely. And even the financial system itself, yeah, there may be a few banks here or there that uh, get caught up um, with larger losses, but we don't see a systemic problem uh, arising here unless you couple it with something else. Right? Yeah. This may be too much of a tangent because there's a lot to talk about here today. Yeah. Uh, a lot of data, it's consumer price index, PPI, a lot of there's a data dump, industrial production, retail sales, housing starts. So there's a lot of economic data. And uh, the Fed came out with the so-called CCAR stress test. I, and we'll, I want to come back to that in just a second. Yeah. Uh, so, it, so there's a, a lot to talk about. But one quick tangent, well, now that we're on CRE, commercial real estate, we construct our own uh, estimate of commercial real estate prices by property type. And you, know, you look at that data, at least based on the way we're constructing it at the moment, and you come away thinking the worst is already behind us. You want to describe that? Because we just got that data. We got this data point yesterday for the fourth quarter of 2023. 
You want to describe that data and you know uh, interpretation of it? Uh, sure. So very quickly, it's a commercial real estate price index. It's a repeat sales index, which is similar to many of the, the house price indices that uh, listeners may know about the Case Shiller or our own Moody's Analytics house price. So we're, we're looking at the same properties transacted <clears throat> multiple times and inferring uh, price changes from from those uh, those changes. It's a way to try to control for the uh, the quality of the properties or the mix or distribution of properties that are transacting. Um, bottom line is in our latest uh, update, which is an equal weighted um, series, right? So we give all the properties equal weight in this version of the index. We actually see that um, you know, things are actually picking up or yeah. seeing a little bit of an increase in uh, in property prices really across the board, even office, right? Showing a little bit of uh, strength. So yeah, maybe worst is worst is over seems reasonable. I'd be a little cautious uh, to read too much in the index because we also know that transaction volumes are still very, very low. Mm-hmm. So we may only be observing the best properties uh, or the properties that are in you know healthy markets uh, that are transacting. So there might be some some of that um, bias creeping in here. But you know, taken at at first blush, it looks as though things may be. No, not not zooming back to uh, solid growth, but uh, uh, at least not declining as as rapidly as they had been. Uh, now, on a, a value value weighted basis, so you said this is equal weighted. So if it's a small office building versus a, a yeah. tower sitting in New York, we don't make a dis- in that index. There's no distinction. But if you if you weight things based on the value, there you see some. That's right. Then, yeah. So we have another version of the index that uh, we're working on that um, that show more significant price declines, right? Once you account for, you know, the, it, because it is those larger central city properties that are seeing some of the largest declines, right? In that version of the index, you do see much more severe uh, type of um, of declines. But even there, it looks as though things may be stabilizing uh, at the end of the series. Again, given all the same caveats apply. I wonder if we we made the same forecast error error with CRE prices as we did with house prices. <laughs> you know, house prices initially declined back in twenty two, then they kind of came back in twenty three, and now we think they're going to be flat. But previously, we thought they'd continue to decline. We're we're now still thinking CRE prices are going to decline more, but maybe not. Maybe given with declining interest rates and the economy doing reasonably well and Maybe the, the adjustment here is this prices go flat for a while as opposed to go down. It could could be. Uh, I guess yeah. another takeaway from those practitioners I talked about is uh-huh. just uh, how uh, how creative the CRE investment yeah. community property managers are. Um, they're going to figure a way to figure out a way to use these properties, you know, with high vacancy rates. So repurpose them it may take some time, but um, I would not. I think it'd be premature to count them out and say, "Oh, this." You know, these properties are dead forever. I think they'll they're they're a pretty creative bunch. Yeah, interesting. Okay, all right. Well, uh, uh, I, I don't. I failed to introduce, and I every now I got inter- I got to say his name right. He's, oh boy, <laughs> Matt. Pressure's on. Matt is here. Matt <laughs> Oh, That's oh now I think I know. I think I got a a, a clue. Collier County is Naples, so I'm going to say Matt Collier. Perfect. Oh my really? I was ready to give up too. That's great. No, that that yeah. really helped out a lot, Collier perfect. County. Yeah, That's that makes perfect. a lot of sense. That's Naples, Florida. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's good to have you, Matt. Yeah, great to be here. 
Yeah. And of course, uh, when we get the CPI or inflation data, you're the first person we think of. So we're going to dive into that. Before we get into the CPI, though, and the PPI and all that stuff, uh, the other big thing that happened this week was the Federal Reserve Board finally, finally released the so-called CCAR stress test. This is the, uh, the bank stress test that were established in the wake of the financial crisis back in 2009. And uh, each year about this time, we're waiting waiting, waiting for the Fed to release those scenarios so that we can run them through our models and the banks can use them in their uh, capital planning and everything else. And this year, the Fed took it right down to the legislative wire. I didn't realize this, but <laughs> written into law, I guess Dodd-Frank, the, the big uh, reform legislation that was passed in the wake of the financial crisis, the Fed has to release by law these stress tests by February 15th. And yesterday, was February 15th. And they, what the heck? You know, uh, what do you think? What, what was going on there, Chris? What, I mean, what was the delay, do you think? Well, they added two scenarios th uh, this year, two exploratory scenarios. Uh, and they claim, or they stated that they use data through the 13th of February. So, uh, you know, perhaps that's why they wanted to wait until the, you know, last possible moment to incorporate the latest information into this really i don't know i don't know I'm making up maybe that pick up q4 2023 q4 data more fully maybe is that what you're saying well no it's actually some of the market data because there's some market data in there uh -huh. i think it's some of the they were trying to capture more maybe the oh. more recent okay data. okay so typically anyway. in recent years we've the the fed releases two scenarios one is just the baseline which is basically I don't know, blue chip consensus or something similar. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and then they uh, release a so-called severe adverse scenario, which is a pretty dark scenario, kind of on the tail of the distribution of possible outcomes. That's what the banks, the big, I guess this year's there's 32 banks that are taking the test, I think. That's right. Yeah, it, that they use that to determine how much capital they need to hold against the losses in a very severe scenario, stress scenario. Uh, but this year, they added what they call two exploratory scenarios, scenario A and scenario B. You want to describe what those are? Yeah. So these are uh, these are new. They are scenarios that uh, are really designed to uh, focus on some of the key stresses to the uh, financial system, to the banks themselves. I uh, assume they're born out of uh, last year's uh, mini banking crisis what happened with svb and other other institutions so these uh, these scenarios really focus on funding stress primarily right so what if uh, a bank on, undergoes a severe period of of funding stress in addition to a a um, an economic uh, recession so the two scenarios are include funding stress plus either a, a mild uh, economic uh, economic recession or a more severe recession. So the combination of these factors, plus inflation, plus rising interest rates. So that's mm. the kind of a, a layering, if you will, of, of multiple risks. At least that's how I interpreted it. So it feels like a reaction to last year's banking crisis, SVB, the, the, the kind of the banks kind of choked on the losses on their security holdings. They got kind of wrong footed in terms of their funding, their funding costs above their lending rate, their net interest margins coming under pressure, that kind of thing. And this was a way to uh, say, hey guys, let's go stress your balance sheet income statement. And let's let's make sure you're okay under a severe in, in one of the exploratory scenarios, very severe mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, stress environment, both in terms of the economic environment, but also in terms of the uh, funding environment. Cost of that's funds. right. That's right. Yeah. 
Good. Mercy, did you have you had a chance to look at the uh, scenarios at all? A bit. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, the baseline and severely adverse look typical as they normally do, right? The Fed is mandated to, uh, in the adverse scenario, kind of move it with the current data so that, for example, if the unemployment rate is higher, right, the peak will be proportionally lower than it was in the prior year if it's, you know, it's it's higher today, right, than it was a year ago when we did these. Um, the, I mean, the Fed has, so they're adding two new exploratory scenarios. There have been years where they've had multiple regular scenarios. They used to have a baseline and adverse and a severely adverse. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's not, you know, it's a little bit more work for them than they've done in the past couple of years, but they have, they have previously done uh, multiple scenarios in the regular CCAR test. And I guess we should note, Chris, too, that these exploratory scenarios aren't going to be used in capital planning for the right. banks. They're, um, mm. they're not exactly optional. I think the Fed Certainly, our our banking clients are not treating them as optional, but they're not going to be used in capital planning. They're kind of for their information to help uh, kind of gauge the risks going forward, but they're not going to be graded on these scenarios like they are on the regular CCAR scenarios. Yeah, I think the results will also be reported in aggregate for those mm-hmm. two scenarios. You won't not get them by, bank, bank. by bank, right? Yeah, yeah the Fed actually, you know, scores each individual bank and publishes each individual bank's results, whether they pass or fail these CCAR scenarios every year. So they're they're not going to do that individually for these exploratory scenarios. Did you happen to notice, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably pressing too hard though, uh, too, too hard there, but, but what was the peak trough decline in CRE, commercial real estate prices in the severe adverse scenario? I think last year it was about 40%. Is it the same? I think it's, it's the, the same. same. It's the same. Okay. All right. That's so interesting. Um, you know, just to, if anyone from the Fed's listening, you know, you're ruining our weekend. I mean, like you're, you're ruining everybody's more than a weekend. This is like crazy. You got to take it right up to the wire February 15th. And then you add another two scenarios, you know, hair on fire, you know, everyone's scrambling here to get this thing done. I mean, I'm not sure why, why, uh, why it's a secret yeah. of when it's yeah. going to be released. Why can't you just say it's going to be this date and it's this date and- And there are know, four scenarios. Did, and there's four <laughs> scenarios and, you know, be ready. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so why? Uh, I mean, I guess I guess you could say, and I'm just guessing, operational uh, resilience. I mean, they're just putting pressure on the banking system and everyone involved to- See if they if you got, actually can do this. It's part of the stress test. <laughs> it's part of the stress. It's called a stress test, guys. Come on, you got to be under stress. Well, no. they usually ruin Super Bowl weekend. At least they didn't that's do that true. this year. That it's almost true. always Super Bowl, Super Bowl weekend. weekend. Oh, maybe that's why they delayed it to the fifteenth. Yeah, yeah. So now it's President's Day weekend. So now President's, Day weekend. President's Day weekend. Yeah. <laughs> if you go all the way back in the stress testing, was two thousand nine. Yeah, it was in November. Was it was Thanksgiving got ruined? Oh, yeah. they pushed pushed it, and then, and then Christmas was getting ruined. Yeah. New Year, so I think they're just going through the holidays, right? Just... <laughs> yeah, I just find it so weird. It, it is odd. something. It is odd. It's really they're probably hard. just trying to make provide people cover for themselves, yeah. like you know, in case the they. Cover. 
in case they make a mistake and they got to go back and redo something or they rethink something or it's not 100% uh, ready. They're probably just trying to take the pressure off themselves to have oh, a specific date. They don't date. have a deadline. Yeah. They don't have a deadline. Yeah. You, you guys At have least... a deadline. We don't have a deadline. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, there's definitely information. They could tell us a week before, a couple of days before, hey, it's going to be you know a little later or whatever. There's, right. there's just silence, right? And then well, all of a sudden it appears. takes the fun out of guessing. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. All right. Okay, enough of the venting, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah, enough of the venting. <laughs> uh, at least for the time being. There better not be a mistake in the data. And there has been in the past. Not in recent years, but uh, that that would be... I think we would have heard about that already if there was you know, some problem. The exploratory there. scenarios are a little weird. They're a little, but they're always a little weird. The, when they were doing the adverse scenario, as you pointed out, it was always weird. You know, immaculate conception, inflation yeah. is raging. You know, no, no explanation as to why, but you know, there it is. You know, so anyway, uh, okay, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about uh, the economic news of the week, and inflation was the headliner. We got both the consumer price index. I believe that was on a on last Tuesday, was it not? Uh, this past Tuesday, and then um, the producer price index—that's prices, kind of at the wholesale level—that is uh, that was released this morning. Both on the hot side, and uh, hot meaning stronger than expected, um, and of course markets have reacted to that. Bond market, uh, stock market. Uh, Matt, you want to give us a kind of a top line sense of of the numbers, and then we're gonna. I think we're going to dig a little deeper into some aspects of this, particularly owner's equivalent rent cost of housing services, because that's a big chunk of the miss here in terms of uh, the high inflation. And uh, we'll, uh, we might risk going too deep into the bowels of these numbers, but uh, I think it's it's worthwhile. Anyway, Matt, you want to give us kind of high level what the, the data say? Sure. It was, it was definitely more than everybody wanted to start the year, uh, the CPI report that came out on Tuesday for January. <clears throat> So the headline number uh, from December to January, the CPI rose 0.3%. We were closer to 0.1. Consensus was 0.2. So it's nominally looking at it. That's not a disaster, uh, but it's hotter than expected. Um, so it, you're on Twitter. So I know you may remember this silly conversation a year or so ago that was like um, a couple of months of 0.1, even 0% monthly growth was held out as success that, hey, inflation, hey, we're winning. This inflation battle is, is going as we want it to. And then there was a pushback of like, oh, what are you talking about? It's still 7%. It's the annual rate. Like there was this, which yeah, both parties were right. This struck me immediately as like, oh, that's the opposite because the headline number dropped from 3.4 to 3.1 on an annual basis. Year over year. Year January over year. January. Yeah. Right. But we get, and it's like, okay, that's, that would be great. We'd be out of the woods pretty quickly if we got that every month. But the monthly rate is what's causing all the concern. Certainly, what what financial markets were reacting to, uh, as you mentioned. So, I, I thought you were going to say, I th and I, I may have this wrong, but my recollection is last January we also got a hot number that was higher than expectations. No. Yeah, I think the the the, the period I'm I referencing is maybe like mid 2022. We start. It was very early to start to get. Oh, over the reason the peak, I bring that up is peak, because. Yeah. Feels like this one. Well, we'll come back to it, but seasonality here is a maybe playing a big role. I mean, it's noise versus signal. And I'm we're gonna I'm gonna ask you how much is noise, how much is signal. But but, but go but go on. What what else do you want to tell us about these numbers? So, just breaking down components. Um, and I know we'll spend more time on shelter, but the big ones. Energy was was a negative contributor this month that was expected. 
Uh, there's been a real decline in late 2023 and into January uh, for uh, gas prices. So gasoline contributed, or I'm sorry, gasoline fell like 3%, uh, 3.3% from, from December to January. Um, electricity prices, which come from natural gas, go into util the utility CPI uh, was positive, but, but not so much. So the 0.9% decline in the energy CPI in January is the third month in a row of declines of a decline. Let me stop you for a second uh, on the electricity, uh, and that has been increasing. Mm -hmm. But we know that natural gas prices, I, I don't know if you've looked recently, but they Way have down. collapsed. I mean, yeah. we're now below $2 per million BTU. $2 in my mind is this kind of threshold. Anything below that is very, very low because we have all this inventory of natural gas everywhere. Mm -hmm. And natural gas is the key feedstock into uh, the production of electricity in the country. So that would argue if this continues, and it feels like it will, that we're going to start seeing some negative signs on electricity prices here going forward. Would that? Would you concur with that? That's right. And I, That's right. Okay. our model, it's a, a lag of about a month or two when you see those natural gas prices drop when that actually shows up in electricity bills. Okay. Um, but moving the other way is gasoline prices since bottoming out in January have drifted up uh, WTI closer to 70 throughout January is now a lot closer to 80. Mm. So there is the the kind of counterbalancing effect there. So the increase that's coming, I would not expect as we are today, we're still only halfway through the month to be a dramatic increase. Mm. But I would say the increases in, in gasoline and in oil are going to offset the decline in natural gas and okay. prices. But okay. So that's energy. So energy is basically flat to down. I right. mean, and it, down this month, flat next month, or something uh, in that order of magnitude. I think that's fair. Okay. Okay. Um, food prices, which were pretty stable, even though they get lumped in with the volatile food and energy category that we look at course uh, when we look at core CPI, uh, accelerated in January, so a 0.4 percent increase. Um, a lot of that still is coming from food away from home, which is is your dining out, which is a more labor intensive way to get food than going to the grocery store and you're dealing with manufacturing prices and shipping and logistics. But when you go out to eat, dining out has been uh, much more expensive, less affordable than grocery store prices. So food away from home rose 0.3% uh, in December and then 0.5% in January and is up over 5% relative to a year ago. So that remains an inflationary source in the US in a way that groceries aren't so food at home rose you're going to sense uh, a theme here by the next thing i say sure and that is it feels like food away from home price growth is also going to slow because uh you know you listen to some of these uh, large uh, uh retail restaurant chains like a mcdonald's or a yum brands they are saying demand has come way off uh and particularly by their lower income customers, and they sense some real sensitivity to the price increases and that consumers are starting to pull back. And if that's the case, that would argue that these, these, these the companies as restaurateurs are going to have to become a little bit more circumspect in their price increases. Does, does that resonate with you? It certainly makes a lot of sense okay. um, uh, and would be a, a good disinflationary force. Uh, Chris Mercy, forward. see what I'm doing here? <laughs> like, I see. I see the setup. You see yep. the setup. See right through okay. it. 
Yeah. Stay right through it. Okay. Uh, okay. Now we're at food at home. And this is, I, this is, you may say, well, it's kind of flattish and really hasn't, the good news is it hasn't really increased that much in, in, the, in the past year. Obviously it rose a lot in 21 and uh, 2022 uh, into 2023. And it feels like that's the thing that got, has people really upset, right? It's the food that's got them going crazy because it, you know, we buy food, people buy food every single day and very focused on that. And, you know, when people think about inflation, they think about the cost of a gallon of regular unleaded, no doubt that's a big deal, but they're also thinking about some food item as well. So what's going on with food at home? Do you think we're going to see continued moderation there as well? I think so. I mean, I think you're at the okay. same type of uh, price sensitivity point. You have a slowing economy, you're moderating the way that we expect it to. I think those are all reasonable intuitions. Okay. I guess the other thing is if diesel prices stay down, right? Obviously a big chunk of the cost of food at uh, a home is getting food from the farm to the store shelf. That goes to cost of transportation, which goes to trucks, which goes to diesel. Diesel prices are, are I don't think they're falling anymore to your point about you know, oil prices, but they, they're down quite a bit as well. And that should help, I would think, in the next at least few months. That sounds right. I haven't okay. thought about our diesel forecast, but would be interesting to look at. Look yeah, at energy okay. okay. Uh, any um, particular food items that you noticed that were up significantly? And is there any stories behind them? Someone someone mentioned to me meat prices, but I, I is it were meat prices up a lot during the month? Do meat, you know? They meat fell, pr- I think. They they fell. Fell. Okay. Oh, really? Okay. But I'm I was... surprised you didn't bring up uh, hot dogs, Mark. You know. Oh, really? I, I know you. Yeah. I know you're a lover of hot dogs. I up, love uh, hot dogs. Up two percent over the month, Mark. Yeah. Oh Oof. wow. Maybe that's what the, the meat the person was saying about meat. You prices. know, egg prices are down almost thirty percent over the year. But remember that great month. egg debate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big uh, egg fan, but I'm a hot dog fan for sure. That's good. I was scanning yeah. for like a, for something for the numbers game, like an obscure food that that moved <laughs> oddly. And yeah. I think tomatoes rose like 5% or 4.5%, which is ketchup, which is hot dog adjacent. But uh, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't I go. Trying to figure out the, I was figuring out, trying to figure out how to connect the dots, but okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure hot dog is meat, but that's yeah. a connection to ketchup. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, where do you want to go next, Matt, in the report? I, I can dig further into components, but, but after talking food and energy, I think core CPI is a good yep. uh, transition. So core also came in a little bit stronger than core we being x energy and food so right. yeah okay so 0.4% growth on the month and that kept core cpi at 3.9% which uh again we expected a 0.3% so we're talking a tenth of percentage point difference um you've highlighted the points and we'll have a few more that we think okay tough month but still the the larger picture is is a positive one um i think Within core CPI, a good place to go would be to talk about vehicles. Well, which... wait, wait, wait. So hold on. So uh, the big thing in core CPI was the cost of housing services, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that uh, the housing services uh, that's rent of shelter and homeowners equivalent rent. I'm a homeowner, and what is it? What what is the uh, implicit rent uh, that I charge myself to live in that home? That's how the Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics measures uh, the cost of home ownership. That's a, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, a third of the CPI and maybe what, 45% of close 45, to close to half of yeah. the core CPI. So that's that's really the ball game right there. And in fact, 
again, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you look at the consumer price index, the whole thing, less shelter, that one third, that year over year, uh, that is now, I think one point through January, 1.6%. That's the rate of growth in CPIX shelters. Uh, the only reason why CPI, top line CPI is 3.1, the number you mentioned earlier, is because of the very continued strong growth in the cost of housing services. So the key here to getting inflation back to something we all feel comfortable with, back to the Federal Reserve's inflation target of 2% on the core consumer expenditure deflator, is getting the growth in the cost of housing services down. And it has been the view, not just our view, the kind of the universal view, that that's going to happen because ultimately the uh, way the Bureau of Labor Statistics measures the uh, cost of housing services is through measuring rents for uh, 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 rental property, what's going on in the marketplace. And we know that rents nationwide have been flattened down over the past year, and everything indicates that that's going to continue to be the case going forward here, at least for the next year or so, because there's just so much multifamily uh, supply coming into the market. And vacancy rates, which are already off bottom, are going to rise uh, meaningfully more. Uh, the surprise here has been that uh, th this slowing in the expected slowing in the growth in the cost of housing services has not happened nearly as quickly. And in fact, last month in January, instead of showing any sign of slowing, it re-accelerated, right? I think in December, owner's equivalent rent rose four tenths, and in January, it rose six tenths, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. That's right. Uh, did did I characterize all of that correctly? Yeah, Matt? absolutely. Okay. okay. So let me turn to you, Chris. What is going on? Uh, and that's a that's a very deep question because uh, when you get down to measuring uh, owners equivalent, measuring anything is difficult, but it feels like measuring owners equivalent rent is like really difficult. Am I am I right? Yeah, it's so difficult that most countries don't actually do it in that right, right. Right? They uh they just look at uh rent observed rents, market rents. That's you know, that even that has some nuance, right? How you control for different rent, but at least they're market prices you can you can see and observe over time. Then there's this owner's equivalent rent, which is just a very squishy uh concept, right? What is what exactly we're trying to to measure here. Lots of ways we can think about it, right? You could, if you want to have a deep philosophical discussion, there are lots of uh, alternative approaches. But the way that the C that the BLS does it is is through this uh, idea of taking observed market rents and imputing using that data to impute values for all the owners' uh, properties, right? Because we don't observe the housing service cost of someone who owns their property. We're gonna impute it from this this other data. In theory, that sounds reasonable, uh, but throughout there's there's some big uh, measurement issues, right? In a lot of markets, the owner mark the owned market and the rented market are very distinct or disjoint, so you might not have data um, that really allows you to accurately assess what the um, owner's properties values really are or rental values really are, uh, and so that could introduce some some potential error. And I think that that might part, be part of the reason why we see uh, these movements here. It's just that imputation process is is imperfect. Um, but over time, I, I think it'll, I, I still think it'll correct. I think it, there's just uh, some sources of noise here. Yeah, my uh, I got a little distracted there. You might hear the dogs in the background. I don't know. But 
you may have said this, but uh, uh, just to reiterate, one thing we learned uh, since the release on Tuesday, because we dug, you know, we every every month we dig deeper and deeper into the bowels of the data to try and understand what's going on. That that uh, to impute owner's equivalent rent, the Bureau of Labor Statistics looks at uh, uh, rental properties at a block group level and says, okay, the homes uh, that are this, the homes that are owned for ownership. Uh, we tie those back to those rental properties and the rents being paid and use that as a basis for constructing uh, owner's equivalent rent. Uh, the issue is, or there's many issues, but one of the most obvious issues is that in some parts of the country, there aren't a whole lot of rental properties. And you know, they're, they're, there's no good way to tie the rental market back to the home ownership market, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics has to do that anyway. And this isn't really an issue in most times because the you know the these mar- the housing market is more homogeneous in terms of the dynamics and what's going on with you know rents and everything else. But in the current market, there's this large distinction between what's going on kind of at the lower end of the housing market because the affordable part of the market because affordability is so tough. There's vacancy rates are ex- you know excruciatingly low, record low. There's no supply. Uh, so rents have held up better. And if I go to, towards the higher end of the market, which would be more correlated with the home ownership market, that's where we've seen more weakness. So if we take what's going on at the uh, more affordable part of the market and apply that to the to homes at the high end of the market, we're, we're, we're going to re- get this result we're observing where we're getting you know, relatively strong uh, increases in other equivalent rent uh, that uh, just doesn't seem to conform with what we're observing. Did, did I, that I said a whole lot there. Did, did I did I make sense? And did, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. Um, okay. It does make sense. I think it may not be the only reason, right? I mentioned there are some other measurement challenges, right? You can always go back to seasonal adjustment whatnot. So there could be some other reasons why this particular month, uh, the, the disconnect between owner's equivalent rent and rent, primary rent was so large. But uh I would agree that there's, you know, that imputation process, you know, is imperfect and it, it can lead to a situation like this, given the current uh, dynamics. There's well, a statistic right? they, for you. 16%, the, 16% oh, yeah. of census block groups have less than wow. 10% uh, rentals, right? So just mm-hmm. to give you a sense of the problem, right? It's, it's not insignificant. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty substantial mm-hmm. part of the market. Mm-hmm. How do they know what's for rent? Like, especially in a single family home market. How do they know what's for rent? Uh, How do they know if you're talking about a block group, right? And let's say on my street, it's all single family homes. Some of these are owned, but rented out. How do they, how do they know what's for rent? What's being rented versus what's being owner occupied? Do you know? I thought they were just sampling, right? Yeah. Calling people up and seeing. Saying, uh, do you rent? Do you own? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the way they do it. They just ask, are you a renter or are you a homeowner? Right. Um, okay. So, all right. But your your sense is still, despite it all, uh, the growth in the cost of housing services should continue to moderate going forward, just because the rental market in aggregate is soft. Yeah, the market rents are exactly are, yeah. are showing. Yeah. Or all the other private data sources show you yeah. know, weakness in the... Um, in the rental market. So that 
has to bleed in over time. But again, it could it could take a while, right? Given this yeah. uh, this methodology. Okay, so here, uh, just to summarize, uh, energy you know, basically flat, maybe down feels like unless oil prices go up here, that's definitely a risk. But barring that, uh, significantly, uh, food prices kind of flattish, maybe down for food away from home because. Um, you know, the price competition and the resistance consumers are now showing with regard to price increases. Growth in the cost of housing services, that we feel is going to continue to slow. Now let's turn to vehicle prices. Uh, and when I, you know, this is, you may say, well how, how, well, how big a part of the index could that possibly be? Well, it's not in, inconsequential, particularly if you consider uh, the cost of insuring a vehicle and the cost of maintaining and repairing a vehicle. Those are also in the, you know, the basket of goods and services in the consumer price index. And they're all tied back to, at the end of the day, new vehicle prices. And new vehicle prices have been went skyward during the pandemic because of the supply chain disruptions and, and the collapse in inventory. But now we're starting to see more inventory uh, and uh, we, we more discounting is starting to uh, come into the market, and we expect that to continue. Matt, do you want to provide any more detail there on the new vehicle prices and, and maybe used if there's any insight there as well? Yeah, I certainly agree with the story, but to throw some numbers on it, new yep. vehicle prices were flat in January, so it didn't change from the month before, and we're very little change from a year ago. It's about point, other up about 0.7% relative to January 2023 speaks to your your suggestion that lots are building up. Um, there's not the supply. We're moving further and further from the supply issues of, of a couple of years ago. Used vehicles um, fell 3.4%, which is massive, which is the biggest monthly decline in about late 60s. So what's that, 60 years? Um, 55. So, and are about the same as they were a year ago. That decline is a little misleading. There's a methodological change at the BLS that, that updates mileage depreciation on a vehicle monthly instead of annually. So it's not something that we're going to expect to see again and again and again. It was uh, kind of a down level shift. Um, so both those, uh, we have flight for new used vehicles, big decline for used vehicles. And then as you alluded to, motor vehicle insurance jumped again, and it's risen over 1% each month for, for at least through 2023, now into 2024. Um, and that's a response to the increases in prices we've seen before in both vehicles and now in vehicle repairs, which are, are you know intuitively very correlated. So relative to a year ago, motor vehicle insurance is 20.6% higher. It's another one of those kind of essentials that you mentioned that, that has people, yes, inflation's moderating, but look at these essentials. You'll, you'll see motor vehicle insurance like food be held out as, as a pain point. Um, and if you look back to 2019, Motor vehicle and car insurance is uh, about forty percent higher than than before the pandemic, and but that's still less than car repairs. So there's, you could suggest that there's still more room to go for insurance premiums uh, in a way, even if we're starting to see moderation in, mm -hmm. in new and used vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, okay, okay, but, but bottom, but bottom line, it feels like. As we look forward here over the next six, nine, 12 months, we should see vehicle prices here really throttle back and actually maybe see some negative numbers in aggregate, you know, as we move forward. Yeah, I think that's fair. Right. And just mathematically, the vehicles uh, cost more and are given more weight than insurance and, yeah. and repairs are. 
Okay, so what in the uh, inflation measures, what component could be a surprise to the upside that's going to add to inflation here? Because so, so far, everything seems to feel like it's, you know, di the direction here is for for slowing inflation or outright price declines. What what could add to inflation here of, of consequence? I don't want to overstate how much of an ad, but but moving in that direction is medical care. And I, I think we saw it in January. And this is medical care has not been part of the story of the post-pandemic bout of inflation in a way that, you know, cars have had their moment, housing we're still you know talking about. But medical care is a big part of the CPI basket. And it's been it's only up 1.1% relative to a year ago, but the past three months has been 0.5%, 0.4%, and now again in January, a 0.5% increase. So that's a 5.4% annualized rate over that period. Um, and there's a few things going on here. Some of it is the well-known staffing shortages that hospitals have had. That's increased in labor costs. Those eventually get passed through in prices, which in healthcare are, are slow to change. And they're often, you know, those costs are set far in advance. So, so these price increases take a bit. Um, there's also some idiosyncratic stuff, the way that the CPI goes about calculating based off of insurance retained earnings, which mm -hmm. we can delve into or not. But I think the more interesting point is, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say we've we dug so deep into the other one. Maybe we'll wait till next month to dig into the other one. Sure, into the medical care. I think um, we're exhausted. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my my interest, my main interest, and not to to lead the way too much is okay. What does this mean for the PCE deflator? Because they're Consumer in that measure, yeah, which the Fed cares more about. Their healthcare is a bigger weight, and if we're seeing this surprise in January, is it just noise? Is it a sign of things to come? And I think there's a lot of reasons that. It isn't just noise. And if anything, the CPI has perhaps been underselling or understating uh, medical care inflation or healthcare inflation in a way that the PPI or the PCE deflator wouldn't. So uh, I think we could see uh, another stretch or for, for, for a few more months where healthcare, medical care is, is providing upward pressure on the CPI. And mm. it's tough to disaggregate in the PCE, PCE deflator. But the kind of thing that uh, after this report this this week for the CPI and the PPI, I, I think both make me think that uh, a downside surprise for the core PC deflator is less likely. Or say it in another way, we're going to get a strong PPI increase is what you're saying. I mean, it's a strong PCE PC. increase, consumer expenditure deflator increase. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You want to, is like... Uh, you want to, do you have an estimate yet of what it's going to be for the month I, of January? I know our model, and PPI? I know our model is 0.3% month over month growth. Okay. Um, Which is I, hot because annualize that, that's what, 3.3637 and, and target is two. But yeah. Yeah. But of course that comes after six months of at target kind of growth. Right. But okay. Anyway, uh, so you, you take this melange of stuff and uh, our, uh, and extrapolate forward, forecast forward, we continue, at least my uh, expectation is that by the end of the year, we're going to be pretty consistently uh, at tar the Fed's target, 2% on the core consumer expenditure deflator, PCE deflator. You know, CPI will have come in more, PPI will remain tame. Anyone take umbrage with that? 
forecast? Is everyone still on board with that forecast to, despite January's number? I mean, bottom January's inflation numbers. I mean, my <clears throat> nothing changed for me given the numbers. You know, data zig and it zags, and January's a tough month, seasonal noise signal, so forth and so on. Everything we just said about the trajectory here for all the different components. It feels like we're headed towards target by the end of the year. That's our forecast. Anyone disagree? Marissa, do you disagree with that forecast? No, no. you're good with that. Okay. Chris? No, I, I, I might even go so far as to say there's a uh, risk in the other direction. Oh, is that right? Lower. I'm on yeah. all ears. Yeah. Why, why would that be? Oh, just, that uh, we do see some softening of demand that you mentioned. You mm. see some of these things coming in. They could, you know, think about food or whatever. Some of these uh, other um, commodities here, they could certainly move uh, in the other direction as well. We could get some upside risk, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you, uh, Matt, any? Well, Chris surprised me. I, I thought I was going to piggyback on Chris being uh, less optimistic about inflation maybe staying elevated, was my guess. But I think if you have another month or so of reports that are okay above consensus again, ex- above expectations, uh, the last mile conversation that, hey, maybe we've leveled off, wage growth isn't mm-hmm. going to continue moderating. I think those will get louder and louder and mm-hmm. justifiably so. Well, that, that comes back to Fed policy. And I, I, what I'd like to do is uh, talk, uh, before we get to Fed policy, we'll end on Fed policy. And of course, between now and then we'll do the statistics game. But the one thing I want to do, do here before we move on to the game is take a big step back and look at inflation more broadly and inflation dynamics. And this, I want to finally put a stake in the heart of the argument that the uh, high inflation that we suffered in 20, particularly in 2021 and 2022 coming into 23 was uh, demand driven, mostly demand driven. You know, there's a, this broader debate. Is it supply uh, related or demand? It's both supply and demand, obviously, but which is more important? And it's been, you know, my strong contention that it's been mostly supply. It was the pandemic, its impact on supply chains and labor markets. We talked about that in the context of, you know, the multifamily construction and the cost of housing services. We talked about it in the context of the vehicle industry. And of course, the Russian war in Ukraine and the impact that had on energy prices, agricultural prices, and the fact that those two shocks kind of conflated uh, together and infected inflation expectations, which uh, got uh, into the wage and price dynamics. And that's when the reserve obviously went on high alert. And of course, everything I'm describing here is a dynamic that's played out globally. It's not just the US. It's the same kind of thing has happened everywhere. But Good news, the pandemic, the economic fallout from the pandemic and Russian war are now in the rearview mirror. They're fading away. And as that has happened, that's allowed inflation to come back in reasonably gracefully without any significant slowing in demand. Uh, you know, unemployment remains below 4%. You know, the economy has not skipped a beat as a result of Fed mm-hmm. rate hikes uh, and inflation has still come in. To me, all of that is evidence of this is mostly supply not not completely you know demand was playing a role probably more uh significantly back in 2021 when we had the american rescue plan and all the fiscal support and stimulus but that's long faded and at this point in time it's it's really not about demand to any significant degree it's it's mostly it's been mostly about supply okay that's a soliloquy i'll stop um anyone want to tackle that take umbrage with that you know disagree with that chris would you argue back on uh, would you take a different perspective on that that perspective uh, that view no no in general yeah. I, I i'd be 
on board with this. Certainly, you could point to some specific products or services if you want to go underneath the uh, the reports here. But if you're talking general inflation, I think that's that's probably consistent with my view that yeah, demand was a pretty significant component back in 21. I don't think you're disputing that, um, but that it's really been the supply side throughout and continuing to have some uh, impact on, on inflation today. Uh, Marissa? No, I, 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 yeah, I think demand was a factor back in 2021, but only to the extent that supply couldn't meet that demand because it was so supply chains were so gummed up. I mean, we did not have a normally functioning, uh, supply chain throughout the world in 2021 yet, right? So had they been functioning normally, maybe it would have been enough to meet demand at that time. And that wouldn't have spiked prices as much as it did starting in the middle of the year. I think the other sort of argument when people talk about demand being a major driver in inflation is if you look around the world, right? People a lot of times point to the fiscal stimulus and say, well, how could that not have been a major factor in juicing up demand? But that was not unique to the United States. Most developed economies did a significant amount of fiscal stimulus during the pandemic. And there too, you know, we haven't seen lingering, uh, you know, Europe was behind the curve, but that was mostly due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it did to energy and natural gas supplies coming into Europe. I think if you look around the world, I think it's hard to argue that fiscal stimulus in the U.S. had a major role in juicing inflation and that it's still pervasive because it was not that stimulus was not unique to the United States. And you see similar patterns around the world. The other thing I would say is that I think inflation has been helped out by weakness in other economies, other developed economies elsewhere. We've talked about China a lot, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the very weak economy, relatively speaking, in China and how that's probably tamped down inflation globally. Now we see Japan may be in a recession. You know, much of Europe is sort of hanging on edge, has been sort of teetering on the brink of very, very slow to no growth. So I think the fact that the ex-US global economies have been weak has also helped out the inflation picture at home. Mm -hmm. all, all good points. Um, uh I, I was I guess someone uh, you were saying someone had asked a question that was uh, one of our listeners had asked a question that was relevant to this d discussion. Did you want to bring that up? Yeah, I mean, I think you just answered it. I mean, the the question was really so. Um, uh, Fed Governor Waller had given an interview with the New York Times, and um, he was he was asked about the causes of inflation in the past couple of years. And he said that if it had been all on the supply side, in other mm. words, if inflation was caused only by supply, mm. then we might expect price levels to drop down to where they were prior to the pandemic once the supply side, you know, uh, issues were resolved. Mm. And because we didn't see price levels 
come back down, that suggests that there was a demand component to inflation as well. He wasn't arguing that it was mostly demand, but he was arguing that it was a mix of the two. Okay. Um, and so the the listener wanted to know what our take on that statement was. Yeah, I, I think there's some validity to that. Uh, I, 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 I'll be more affirmative. I think that makes sense. Uh, although I will say the uh, the the old adage, you know, prices go up like a rocket; they come down like a feather. Uh, you know, in a, a supply constrained economy, prices took off. And it's going to take time, and, and, and you can see it in profit margins for companies. The margins, you know, economy wide are very wide because businesses were able to jack up prices very aggressively during that period and outstrip the growth in the cost of their uh, of their inputs, labor, and everything else. But prices only come in slowly over time as competitive pressures intensify. We talked about it in the context of the food away from home, you know, the McDonald's and the Yum brands. It takes time for competitive pressures and for price sensitivity to kick in to to a place where you know businesses say, "Oh, okay, I have to become more circumspect in my pricing." Even then, you know, I think there will be some products and services where you see price declines uh, as things as that feather continues to fall. But I suspect in many industries, it's more about pricing just kind of going more flattish. Here, business businesses are very very reluctant to cut price. But they are much more willing to be more cautious in raising their prices. So I wouldn't be surprised if we have an extended period of, you know, inflation that is, you know, very low or maybe even below the Fed's target, as you know, the, given the competitive pressures as they begin to kick in. But I, I, I mean, I'm I, I'm sympathetic to that the Waller view that you know if it was all supply, then you'd see prices come in. But I I don't know that I would take it. I, I don't think that's a st really strong argument because I, this just goes to the kind of the typical di pricing dynamics that exist, uh, you know, in the more in the actual economy among businesses. The other point I wanted to make, and this this goes to a podcast I was listening to this weekend. I don't I don't listen to many podcasts. Um, uh, I listen to our podcast, but I don't listen to many podcasts. But I was listening to one and. The you know very good one uh, economist was arguing that it was most he was basically arguing it was mostly demand and fiscal uh, supports fiscal stimulus, and he was doing this kind of the back of the envelope calculation. If you add up all of the fiscal stimulus between the CARES Act, which was the first pandemic related support program passed in March of 2020, all the way through the American Rescue Plan, which was March of 2021, that was and there was a few other fiscal stimulus packages. You know, provided in between, it comes to. Uh, I don't think these were his numbers, but they're my numbers. Five trillion dollars. That's twenty-five percent of GDP. And then he argued, well, apply a multi so-called multiplier to that of one and a half or two. That's that's a lot of GDP, and how can that not be driving you know the inflation that that occurred? Uh, I think the the point though is that that five trillion and that that's the right number twenty five percent of GDP that was spent out over a long period of time. It's still being spent out. In fact, if you look at state and local governments, they got a, a big check from the federal government, and they don't need to spend that out. I think completely until the end of twenty twenty six. They have to commit it by the end of this year, but not until the end of twenty twenty six. And there's other aspects of the of the uh, legislative funding that hasn't even been spent like for example if you look at the uh, way congress wants to pay for this tax piece of tax legislation 
that's snaking its way through Congress right now. This goes to R&D tax credits and LIHTC and child tax credit. It's paid for by the employee retention tax credit, which was funding that was appropriated part of that $5 trillion during fiscal stimulus. And it's still out, sitting out there and they're going to use it now for the, these other you know, tax support. And the other thing I'd point out is there's still, a, by our estimate, a, a lot of excess saving, you know, savings that were built up during the pandemic that's just kind of sitting in people's checking accounts. And so the multiplier wasn't one and a half or two. The multiplier was probably 0.2 or 0.3. It was not that large. And so it did help support demand, but didn't help it, uh, didn't uh, support it to the degree that it would be the primary cause of uh, underlying inflation. Anyway, uh, I was I was out there uh, wait, doing my old man weightlifting, <laughs> listening to this podcast and getting a little annoyed by it, uh, getting a little annoyed by it. But uh, anyway, that's why I have this. We have this podcast so we, we can express our views. Matt, anything on that before we move to the stats game? No, all sounded great. Okay, sounds good. Okay, let's go to the stats game. Um, we each put forward a statistic. Uh, uh, we The rest of the group tries to figure that out through questions, deductive reasoning, uh, clues. The best stat is one that's not so easy. We get it immediately, which is hard to do with Marissa playing the game. Uh, and one that's not so hard, we never get it. And if it's apropos to the topics at hand, all the better. Marissa, you're up. All right. Uh, my statistic is positive 0.8% in January. Positive 8%. The government statistics. 0.8. 0.8. 0.8. 0.8%. Yeah. Positive. Government statistic? Yep. Retail uh, sales? No. No. They were down. No, that, that, that was, that was my minus previous. 0.8. Okay. Minus yeah. 0.8. Yeah. There was a 0.8 in that report. It was a report. 0.8, yeah. Uh, with a negative sign. Um <laughs> Inflation related? Yes. In the CPI report? No. In the PPI report? No. Ah. The statistic that came out this week? Yep. Expectations? No. Expectations. Um, a government statistic, though, 0.8. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. hmm. What do you think, Matt? I don't Any know. Ideas? I'm looking at the releases, but not specific data. Just, to, <laughs> so I'm not sure. uh, just to remind just you of the, the releases. The yeah. calendar, yeah. I Is it to. one of the, can I, uh, this might be unfair. One of the releases we cover on economic view. It is. Oh, Matt, how embarrassing. It's in <laughs> <laughs> How embarrassing for you, Matt. How embarrassing yeah. for you, Matt. <laughs> well, not if I don't, if I get it right yeah. now. Is it import prices? It is, uh, yes. Uh, okay, nice. very good. I nice recovery. Back. Nice uh, recovery. Yeah, I'm still. I, I knew I needed to put a stick in your uh, in your in your eye to, to <laughs> right, explain, okay. Marissa. Point eight. Yeah. So uh, the prices of imported goods rose 0.8 percent over the month in January. Uh, they are down about one percent over the year, um, but they've risen for actually the the increase in january followed three monthly declines the increase in import prices is important because imports are part of the basket of goods that we consume and are therefore reflected in uh, the cpi report as well um the price of imported fuel and energy rose pretty sharply over the month hmm. in january but so did the prices of things like 
um, capital goods, consumer goods, vehicles. So a lot of across the board uh, imported goods prices rose over the month, contributing to at least likely some of the gain that we saw in in CPI. Um, export exported goods were also up by 0.8 percent. So the the cost of goods that we export to other countries was up 0.8% over the year. And exported good prices are down over 2% over the year. Um, so I just thought it was another way of thinking about the basket of goods, right? When we focus on CPI, we're, we're talking about domestic prices, but many of these goods that are being counted in CPI come from abroad. So that's 0.8% year over year through March, uh, through January. No, it, it was 0.8% over the month. The really? increase in import, yeah, it was 0.8% over the month. Year over year, import prices are down a little okay. over 1%. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So this, this state is volatile month to month. I mean, the, the tra trajectory here is for lower import prices, right? Strong dollar. That's right. point about China and the global yep. economy. Yep. I mean, that's been a restraint on inflation. So that, that, that number in January feels weird, you know. Yeah, maybe it was it was an outlier, which is why I brought it, up. Yeah, brought it up. Yeah, yeah. Okay, fair, fair enough. And export prices uh, year over year, what were they, they? year over year? They're down two point four percent. Okay, all right, very good. So okay. more than yeah, more than import prices. Okay, Matt, you want to go? Sure. The zero point five three percent. Okay, government statistic. Pseudo government, like a like the Federal Reserve statistic. Yes, industrial production. No, it's not in the industrial production report. No, point five three. It came out this week. Yes. Hmm. Did anything on, on consumer credit come out this week from the Fed, or uh, that that's was... not consumer credit related? No. Uh, um hmm. Uh is it financial related? Financial system related? Inflation related. Oh, inflation related oh. from the Federal Reserve Board. What could that be? Inflation. Maybe the not Federal. the board, but Federal oh, the, Reserve. Oh, like the New York Fed. Uh or one of the Fed district banks. Yeah. Yes. Uh okay. And it's inflation related in uh like a Cleveland Fed. Median. Ah, oh, that's it. Nice. Oh, yes. geez. Oh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was obscure, but I thought we'd get it. That's good. Ah, uh, I'll take that. I thought so that was pretty, good. I, pretty yeah. good. That is good. Uh, yeah. The Cleveland Fed's median CPI estimate, where they look at the item right in the middle. Uh, so the, the 0.53. So the 0.53% increase is from <laughs> December to January. It's the fastest pace for the Cleveland Fed, uh, Fed median CPI in almost a year, uh, which I don't think, I mean, January has its own weirdness and I don't think that we're, we're experiencing any kind of reacceleration, but um, it's not, I mean, shelter is rising, it's very strong, but there is a little bit of broadening out uh, in inflationary pressures that push that up. So year over year, it's 5.7%, which is up about 5.3% year over year. So. I don't think the last mile conversation is mm. really heating up, but it could heat up. Mm. Was it 0.5 last January or? Uh, no, in February. So it oh, wasn't February. Total. Okay. I mean, and it was 0.6 okay. was. Uh, 0.6. Uh, yeah. So not uh. entirely a seasonal thing. Uh, it's funny. I, I 
uh, when rate inflation was raging a year or two ago, I'd look at that number religiously from the mm -hmm. Cleveland Fed. I haven't looked recently. I, I probably yeah. should. That's probably a mistake. I should probably keep looking at it. Okay. All right. Uh, did you look? There's the Fed puts out the other Feds put out all, all kinds of so-called trim mean mm -hmm. other different measures to try to get a kind of core sticky price inflation that kind of stuff. Did you look at those? Are they nothing top of mind? Um, top of mind. Certainly okay. can. Yeah. No worries. Chris, you're up. Uh, sure. Thirty-five point seven percent and minus twenty-six point six percent. Are positive? Thirty-five point seven. Positive. Yep. Are these inflation related? Nope. No. What was what was the second one? Negative 20? 26.6. You can't chat, um, chat GPT it, Matt. That would be unfair. Can't uh, do that. They're of not course, they, they'll probably tell you the temperature in Anchorage, Alaska or something. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, is it a government statistic? Yes. Is it housing related? Yes. Hmm. It's related to housing starts? Oh, is it housing? Yeah. Not starts. Permits? Permits. Yes. Uh, oh, I know what it is. Single family was up, multifamily was down. Uh, you got it. Yeah. You got it. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Overall was up 8.6% uh, because single family is larger, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, what's uh, going on? I, I, I chose it because, you know, housing usually is, or housing construction, usually early warning indicator of uh, some weakness. And, you know, although there's some weakness there, Builders seem still seem pretty optimistic they're applying for these permits, but you do see that shift, right? Multifamily pullback, um, much more emphasis on the single family side here. So, yeah, that's uh, so, what I call. Yeah, so multifamily has been kind of surprising, right? Because uh, we've all been waiting for it to slow down, given the banking crisis a year ago and the hand wringing over, over commercial real estate. And actually, in our CRE, going back to the beginning of the podcast, our CRE price indices show that multifamily prices are down from the peak more than any other property type, at least so far. That's right. Based on an equal weighted basis. So we can be kind of sort of waiting for kind of the, the floor, to, floor to fall out, so to speak, in the multifamily construction. And I guess the sense is that what's what's going on here. Yeah, although you know, a, a little uh, perspective needed here. Yeah, if you it, it, we're we're down a lot on multifamily permits this year, but we're kind of right back where we were in twenty nineteen, end of twenty nineteen, start of pandemic. So we're, you know, we're not collapsing here. There's still new multifamily projects being um, projected and and put up, uh, but you do still have this fairly sizable inventory of projects still under under construction and you have those financing issues uh, that are reducing some of the activity but i don't see them it's not a collapse right it's still kind of going back to where it was mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um okay that was a good one i've got i'll give you mine uh this is a bit obscure but very, yeah it's a little a little obscure but i'll give it to you I'll give you some big hints. Uh, 2.2%. And this is uh, that that is uh, the monthly percentage increase in January, 2.2%. And here I'm going to give you the year-over-year -year increase. This year, is CPI related? It is not. The um, It is not. Uh, it's a statistic that came out this week. And the year-over-year -year through January, up 20.6%. Uh, it's a st stat that came out uh, this week. Uh, it is from the Federal Reserve 
board. Yep. Federal Reserve Board. Yep. Uh, is it semiconductor production? Uh, have we oh about my it? gosh. <laughs> how does he, how did he know that? I would love to be incur I congratulated but mark you asked about this earlier in the week so this was oh that's right yeah. that's right yes which i Ask deserve Max's credit question yeah, yeah, oh, yeah i deserve credit for this honor oh, this yeah. integrity you should not that. have said anything no, you, that I'm, was like highly impressive that's integrity. <laughs> yeah. although i think 20.6 percent is exactly what motor vehicle insurance is up to over a year but that's oh really story. oh yeah. wow um okay yeah. So this is uh, industrial production in the chip industry, semiconductor industry, and it's booming. It's booming over the past year. And it probably has nothing to do. You'd think first blush CHIPS Act. Remember the CHIPS Act? That's the legislation that was passed a couple of years ago. It provides a lot of tax subsidy to build semiconductor fab plants here in the United States. The thing is, those plants are still under construction. You know, they're not going to be finished uh, until this year or next year in 2026. So this increase is all about, well, largely about AI. I think it's artificial intelligence. That just gives you a sense of how powerful that has been. And, you know, also demand to some degree. I think uh, uh, chip inventories got overladen back a year or so ago. You know, coming out of the pandemic and the supply chain disruption, companies rebuilt inventory and then some because they were fearful that they'd get disrupted again. But now inventories are, are you know, uh, you know, uh, and they had to work some of that off, but now inventories are back to something more normal and that's allowing production to kick, kick back into gear. But, uh, but uh, we're going to see some pretty sizable increases, I think, in industrial production and uh, the chip industry over the course of the next uh, couple, three years, given the chips act. So I thought that thought that was interesting. Oh, Matt. Yeah. I forgot completely. I asked you what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were teeing yeah. me up to look smart, yeah. which I, I appreciate. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. That is so funny. Well, let's end this way. Let's uh, uh, given all the discussion about what uh, about inflation and, and uh, we, you know, we were railing on the fed at the beginning of the podcast regarding the st stress. Test. Let's come back to the fed. And I want to ask the question, Nat, let's assume that you were sitting on the Federal Reserve Board. You were uh, part of the FOMC policymaking committee, and you need to be you need to make a decision about uh, uh, future interest rates. So the question is, what would be the next move uh, on rates, and when do you think you would move it, and and why? Okay, and just as context, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. If you look at market expectations, the next move is for a cut, and the most likely date for a cut is the June meeting. Is that like yeah? So it's not the March no. meeting, it's not the May meeting, it's the June meeting, and that happened this week, given the strong inflation statistics. The market now thinks the Fed's going to be delayed. So okay, uh, Matt, you're on the FOMC. Uh, wh what do you think? What, what should the Fed do here? Not what will it do, but you can say that too if you want. But what should it do? I think May is a, a fine time to make the first cut. That's our baseline forecast. That's probably what I would pine for. I think if you wait for the economy to show signs clearly that it's slowing and in trouble, then it's too late. So I think getting ahead of it and the trends that we're confident in, shelter, even if it's a little delayed, those prices are going to come down. Um, and the risk of, of waiting too long is, is is a lot more dangerous. So I would start cutting in May. And I'm a little surprised at the futures markets that now put June as the June. Yeah, likely probability. Of course, we get another inflation report or two here. And if they came in on the hot side, would that change your mind or 
I, I think so. Depends, but so the, the February report comes out before the March meeting, which is yeah. the doors closed on that. But yeah. the um, if you see another report and it's the same broadening of inflation in in the way that isn't just uh, you know stuff you can point to and, and kind of wave away, then I think then yeah maybe we're looking at the second half of twenty twenty four at least June. Okay. All right, Marissa. Um, I think I would wait for another inflation report. And I think I would do a small rate cut 25 basis points in May. And when you say you'd wait for the inflation report, what- make sure that nothing looks to be concerning in that report following on this one and the PPI report and the strong jobs report that we got with wages accelerating. I think I feel pretty confident that all of these things that we've recently gotten that have run hot are sort of one-offs and I I wouldn't be too worried about it. So I'd be inclined to move sooner rather than later. Right. Okay. Chris, what's your inclination? I'm going to go with a 25 basis point cut in uh, June. So wait, be a little bit more patient here. Kind of building on Marissa's theme, just Wanting to be sure, I think the downside risks are are greater uh, than the upside of, of cutting earlier. So, yeah, but May June, it's not the it's yeah. not a dramatic difference. Uh, yeah, I also don't sense. think cutting twenty five basis points is that dramatic either. Right in either of those months, right? So if even if you jump the gun a little bit, you cut twenty five basis points and then you wait and see again. I don't think you're gonna do a lot of damage with that small rate cut. Right. I don't know. I think that first cut is psychologically important, right? It's, That's true. It's declaring yeah. the end of the cycle, right? It's like, it's that mission accomplished banner. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's what I would worry about more than the size. Presumably markets would take the one cut and say, oh, more oh, are coming. Yeah. Financial conditions would ease. So uh, you have to be very careful about that. Uh, you know what? I, I think I'm going to make the case they should cut now. Uh, I'm I'm confused as to why we should wait. Uh, here's the logic. Um, the, the, the Fed is very close to achieving its mandate. It, it has two goals. One is full employment. The second is low and stable inflation. Is, and they define that as 2% on the core consumer expenditure deflator. On full employment, check. We're there. Uh, you know, the 3.67% unemployment rate, that feels like full employment. It doesn't feel like we're beyond full employment. Uh, that, you know, it's, I don't think the full employment unemployment rate is four to four and a half. I think it's three and a half to four. That's consistent with everything we're observing with regard to wage growth and labor market dynamics. And the other thing is, I'd say it feels like the labor market is getting squishy to me. Uh, you know, you can see it in hours work, they've declined. You can see it in hiring rates, they've declined. You can see it in temp help that's declined. You can see it in quit rates that's declined. You know, back uh, to you know, kind of pre-pandemic wage growth is moderated. The only thing that's kind of hang, hung in there in the labor market, thank goodness, otherwise we would have recession, is layoffs. They're low, but everything else in the labor market feels softish to me, um, and you know, suggests that that uh, you know uh, we got to be careful that uh, we don't start seeing layoffs. So on full employment. You know, we're there. On inflation, I keep going back to C- uh, CPI inflation, X shelter, 
1.6% year over year. We're there and we all feel confident in our forecast. And this is more accounting than a forecast, econometric forecast that uh, the cost of housing, uh, uh, the cost of housing is going to slow and we're going to get back to to the Fed's uh, target here in a reasonably graceful way over the next, certainly by the end of the year, we'll be there. And by the way, we're, we're you know, on a six month annualized basis, we're, you know, look at the core consumer expenditure deflator, it's 1.9% annualized. You know, maybe it'll be a little high in January. And I chalk that up to seasonals and noise more than, than signal, but, but nonetheless, I mean, we're, we're on, you know, on a, on a six month basis, we're already there. So, Inflation, it feels like, you know, all the trend lines are moving in the right direction and we're going to get there in a reasonably graceful way. Inflation expectations, well anchored. No no sign of either in terms of bond market expectations or expectations of consumers were there. Financial conditions, it feels not too hot, not too cold. The stock market's, you know, high, but Bond yields are up. You know, the 30-year fix is sitting at 7% plus. That's pretty high. That's high on the high side. Uh, financial uh, credit uh, banking lending has tightened up in the wake of the of the, their banking problems of a year ago. The dollar is very strong. You know, it's, uh, the, we're at you know, 150 yen to the dollar. The yuan is low relative to the value of the dollar. So financial conditions, kind of a wash. So you add this all up and you go, okay. You know, I'm at I'm I've achieved my goal. I'm I'm there. And in that context, why a five and a half percent funds rate target? Does that make sense to anybody? I mean, the Fed is saying the equilibrium rate R star, the rate that's consistent with uh, uh, monetary policy and either supporting or restraining growth, is two and a half. But okay, maybe it's three, maybe it's three and a half. But still, five and a half. I mean, that doesn't. You know why? You know why are we doing that? So uh, I I don't know. I think I can make a. I think I just did <laughs> make a pretty strong case for let, let's get going here. Come on already, you know. And I I agree with you. You know March, May, June. That's you know a couple three months. I don't know that that make that you know makes a big difference in the context of the resilience of our economy. But but I don't. I, you know I'm increasingly I'm increasingly nervous. That these guys are going to make another mistake, the Fed. The Fed made a mistake on the other side of this. If you go back to early, and I don't, it's I, you know, I don't want to cast aspersion because it's this is a tough job. This is not get this right is not easy. But they got it wrong. They waited too long to raise rates back in early 2022, so they have a penchant for waiting too long. And I'm worried that they're going to do that again here. And this, I mean, I know I'm feeding Chris's downside scenario, <laughs> but. They, that's why you. I was surprised you said June. They should go sooner rather than later. Not wait, you know, for something to go wrong, for something to break somewhere as a result of all this. Okay, I just said a lot. Anyone want to push back on that? Did I change anybody's mind? Well, what about the? I mean, the economy seems to be doing just fine at the Fed funds rate that we're at. I'm not it, so sure. It doesn't seem to be as sensitive to interest rates as we would have thought prior to the beginning of this cycle. So what's the hurry? And I'm, and I'm not I'm actually not disagreeing with you. I'm just yeah. sort of maybe playing yeah. devil's advocate. No, no, that's very fair. Well, I'd say uh, I agree with you. That's why I think the equilibrium rate R star is not two and a half. Yeah. I, I think it's higher than that. I think it's three, could be three and a half, you know, not forever, but, you know, in the current, 
next year, two or three, it's it's elevated for the reason you just expressed. But I I sense some underlying weakness in the economy. I, I just express it in the context of the labor market. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're one round of layoffs away from you know the economy really flipping here. Uh, and the other thing is, you go look at G, you know then you say GDP, but I'd say GDI, GD gross domestic product, gross domestic income. You got to average those two things, and if you average those two things, it shows a more pedestrian economy. It doesn't show a, a you know this economy is really strong. So I and then I, I keep going back to, you know, if you have interest rates very high like this and short rates above long rates, and the yield curve inverted and it's still inverted, something in the financial system could break, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere because that's you're putting a lot of pressure on the system, and uh, in the the rest of the operating environment for the banks and financial institutions and all that great anyway. I mean, l- slower loan growth, rising credit uh, uh, problems, uh, higher regulatory costs. I mean, so, and, and I don't know what that could be, but I didn't anticipate SVB a year ago either. And maybe the next thing that breaks isn't in the banking system where the Fed can get to it very quickly. It's in the non-bank part of the system, which is like, oh my gosh, how do I help that part of the system out in a reasonably graceful way? So I'm saying why, but and why, why take that risk in the context of everything we know about what's going on in the economy? I have achieved my goals. Let's declare victory. Come on. And then, and I'm not saying cut rates quick. I say cut rates quarter point, maybe once every quarter, start taking them down and getting, and even if you do that, we don't get back to the equilibrium rate until the end of 2025 or early 2026. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyway, Chris. No, it's it's reason. It, it requires a fair amount of nuance on the data, though, right? To exp- to make that argument, right? You're going to say oh, this. All the things we've been talking about the, in terms of the inflation report today, right? You got to look through it. There's nuance here. There's a lot of technical detail. Yeah, got to strip it out. No, that's uh that that may be a lot to to argue here in terms of um, convincing uh, market participants that inflation really is under control here, right? You're making a, a case that, you know, the underlying inflation, I, I agree with you on this point, but um, still, it's not showing up in the data quite yet. And what well, if? Hold on. What hold if on. owners' equivalent rent goes up seven tenths of a percent? Next yeah, time, okay, right? but it's that, not, uh... yeah, that's that. Yeah, I, I, that's not going to happen. I mean, all likelihood is not going to happen. Well, but but hold say on. It's, it's the, coming down. What, it's coming what, down. Actually, what do you, what do you what? I mean, now this is like to the Fed. What do you want? I mean, the core PCE over the last six months is one point nine percent annualized. What do you want? What, what, what is it that you want exactly? Do you want it to be 2% year over year for three years before you cut interest rates? I mean, what's the bar? I, I mean, yes, the mo- every month to month thing goes up and down and all around. And yes, you're going to have season. We know the seasonals are playing havoc with the data, especially in the month of January to the economic data. We know this. We know this. So what do you want exactly? What's your bar? And I'm just saying my bar, I'm over it. I'm over it. Let's go, baby. And I'm not saying slash interest rates. I'm saying cut a, you know, cut them a quarter point and indicate that we're going to cut a quarter point every quarter, you know, until it, unless the data really does and inflation expectations start to rise or growth starts to reaccelerate or whatever it is. But that, you know, that but the what what is it that you need to convince you that we're there? You know, we've, we've done what we need to do. Anyway, as you can see, I'm gearing myself up here for it. I'm writing. I'm writing a piece. That's this is, this is the argument. This is okay, the argument. that's what you uh, think they should do. What what will they do? Oh, they won't do what I just said. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, our forecast is May. Um, 
you know, I'm like the mar- the markets is putting some what a third probability on May, maybe two thirds. I'm making this up, two thirds on June. Yeah, that's that's probably a pretty good forecast of you know what the Fed's going to do at this point. But as you as we can see, that thing can move. Yeah, rapidly yeah. with one release. So next release, if it's down or up, we could change the dynamics here very quickly. Yep. All right. Uh, I I I uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to vent. Like I've been venting all this whole podcast, uh, but uh, I really appreciate that opportunity. But anything else, guys, before we call it a podcast? Matt, good job yeah, on the so. rundown. Chris, Marissa, anything? And we'll get Ryan Sweet on. Yeah, it's, it's your job, Chris. Got to get him on. We'll do. We'll do. All right. Very good. All right. With that, we're going to call it a podcast. Thank you for paying attention to us, uh, dear listener. Talk to you next week. Take care now.